so we're good. The um, Hebrews chapter 10 does the same thing where last week, if you were here, you know that we dealt with a very, very challenging warning passage, maybe one of the strongest warnings in our Bibles. And I think for the most part, we survived. We appear to have. We're, we're here this morning and seem to have our wits about us. So, um, the, uh, But this passage today is just like Hebrews 6. It's the encouragement after the warning. And it's the encouragement that's going to set the stage for Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read the passage in the little paragraph together in one chunk. But then we're going to sort of break it down into five pieces. What we're going to look at this morning is five things that are true about faith that we're going to see play out in the heroes chapter, in chapter 11. We're going to see little elements of these things, differing degrees, but they're things you're going to see in the faith chapter. Let's look at our passage beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised." For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's look at our first thing that we can glean from this passage this morning regarding faith looking especially at verses 32 through 34. I'm going to read those again and look for what's being shared here about this people. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. In some ways, this Hebrews pastor is encouraging his people with a reminder of who they used to be and how they used to move. They used to be faithful If you know, if you've been with us for these last few weeks or months, you know that the Hebrews church is in danger of bailing on Christianity. They're in danger of apostasy was the the word we considered last week. A very frightening place to be. And he's reminding them of how they used to move in the former days after you were enlightened. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. A few of the key words in these first three verses that help kind of bring out the the character of what's going on here, what he's pointing them back to, they endured a hard struggle with sufferings. That word struggle is a word that means contest. In the Greek, the word is athlesis. It's a nice fitting connection to the other bookend that we read that, that someone, I think Cody read back there from the sound booth this morning from Hebrews 12. Run with endurance, finish the race sort of language because that's the picture here. It's a contest or a long, grueling athletic event with suffering. 
And then in verse 33, there's another Greek word that will be familiar to you because there's a root word here that's connected to something that we know a lot, a lot about. They were publicly exposed. That word is theatrozomenoi. <laughs> I had to breathe before I said that. Theatrozomenoi, it's where we get the word theater or theatrics. It means to bring up on stage. It means to be made a spectacle of. This is the passage, this, or this is the word that's pointing toward being held up to public shame. You're dealing with a contest with sufferings, like a long, grueling athletic event. You're held up to public shame as a public spectacle. And then in verse 34, those in prison aren't in prison because they've stolen something. Or because they've murdered somebody. They're imprisoned for their faith. That's the imprisonment that's being spoken of here. So some of these things point toward this first ingredient of faith is that the reality that faith suffers. True faith suffers. Now we can piece together some other ingredients here from Hebrews chapter 12. They're going to help us understand the nature of suffering at this point as they're hearing it in this letter. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's a little clue for us that they haven't experienced martyrdom yet. They've experienced some significant suffering, but they have not apparently suffered to the point of bleeding yet. A little ancient history for you. I'm getting into ancient history because I appreciate how it makes me under, helps me understand my Bible. In AD 41 in Rome, the Roman Empire, after Claudius became emperor, he imposed restrictions on Jews in Rome. We don't know exactly the nature of those restrictions when he first became emperor, but we know that eight years later, he had all the Jews leave Rome. Now, it wouldn't have been a perfect application of an edict because they, it'd be hard, they're dispersed all over Rome. How are they going to apply that sort of edict? But he had, for the most part, he had large portions of the Jewish population in Rome expelled. According to an ancient historian, Suetonius, he expelled them because they were constantly indulging in riots at the instigation of Crestus. It's beautiful. It's one of our earliest ancient extra-biblical evidences for the impact that Christ had had on the Roman Empire. Get the Jews out of here because they're having these riots over this Jesus person, this Christ person. It's really cool because what this does for us is this places us, or this helps us place the letter of Hebrews post-AD 49 and pre A.D. 70, before the destruction of the temple. The language that's used in the letter is, doesn't give any indication that the temple has been destroyed at this point. So we can sort of narrow down a window here between 49 A.D. and 70 A.D., which is likely when the Hebrews letter was written. Now here's some other cool information. Two of the Jews that were expelled during this edict were named Aquila and Priscilla. And they later settled in Corinth where Paul met them in 50 A.D. It's pretty cool. You're going to see some passages come together here in a moment. Now, and an eviction of this scale would have resulted 
in the suffering that's mentioned here in these verses 32 through 34. An eviction of this scale would have resulted in public reproach, affliction, imprisonment, and plundering of their property. Now, I'm going to share a few more thoughts about, with you, interesting insights. You can, I want you to always keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 10 today, but turn over to Acts chapter 18. And while you're turning there, I'm going to share a few additional thoughts with you. I'm going to share another passage with you from Romans. Sometimes whenever the Christian faith is spoken of, some things that are left out, uh, suffering is one of those things that are often left out. You don't hear a lot of conversation about suffering when someone's sharing the gospel with someone, for example, that, oh, you're going to suffer. But it appears if you really read your full counsel, you're really looking for it, you find that true faith, real faith, is going to suffer. It's not a figurative thing. It's not just a notion, but it's a reality that suffering is going to take place. Now, they, although they hadn't experienced martyrdom at this point, later on in the early Christian story, if you know your ancient history, you know that they experienced significant suffering at the hands of guys like Nero, where they're lit as human torches around the gardens. This week, I spent a, a portion of my time reading some of these ancient writings from these ancient historians. You should read some of it. That's our brothers and sisters that went on before us that were faithful. And it'll bring into focus some of what's being talked about here. But there's a scale of suffering. But listen to this passage from Romans chapter 8. We'll deal with Acts 18 here in a moment. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. With him. It appears that suffering is part and parcel to faith. It's not just an option that you may or may not experience. There is a scale of suffering. In this case, in the letter of Hebrews, it looks like that scale right now is just a struggle, like a grueling athletic event, a spectacle, imprisonment. But we know from our ancient history it got a lot worse later on. Suffering in our spectrum and suffering in our context may include some of the following possibilities. We may be maligned for your faith. You may try to speak truth into a context and be completely misunderstood, completely misrepresented. In fact, it's not a possibility. It's highly likely If someone receives truth that you speak in a dark context and says, oh, thank you very much for sharing that, and everyone in the room agrees, then, man, you need to keep speaking. Gracious sakes alive. God's using you for something. But the reality is, if you speak truth into a context, you will be maligned. You will be misunderstood. You will likely at some point, hopefully for your, tra- your faith, be betrayed. You could potentially move the other end of torture and martyrdom. In our context, suffering may include suffering with a loved one who's dying well, faithfully. It might be caring for a loved one and honoring God by honoring your parent in their ailing years or as they're dying from some sickness. Suffering may involve coming alongside them in a quiet suffering as you tend to them. 
You may suffer from isolation from others as you find faith maybe for the first time or as you begin to walk faithfully in a movement. Past friends may alienate you, and that is surely a suffering. Folks that you are close to. Whatever the case, there is a broad spectrum there, but the reality is true faith suffers. And here's the cool thing is God doesn't waste that suffering. He doesn't waste it. I told you where I was going to share some thoughts with you about Aquila and Priscilla. Go back there. If you're already there, Acts chapter 18. Let me find it myself and we'll look at this together. Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Pretty cool. There's some connections there. Ancient history and understanding our Bibles and understanding context. The Hebrews preacher, as he's writing right here, likely between 49 and 70 A.D., he may be talking about Aquila and Priscilla, who had already had to leave Rome, according to Claudius's decree. And these guys ended up being the same trade, so he stayed with them and worked for, with them, for they were tent makers by trade. Pretty cool passages. Look, listen to this next one. Chapter 18, verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. This couple that's evicted from Rome, this couple that's on the receiving end of some real persecution and what we would call suffering for their faith is now deployed to link up with Paul and then later deployed to deploy with Paul. The cool thing is, if we didn't have the rest of this story, we may just think this is suffering just for suffering's sake. But now we're seeing that what was suffering, God had a plan for, that God meant to do something good with that terrible thing. That he's going to deploy Aquila and Priscilla to come alongside Paul. Now here's the especially cool thing to me. Look also in chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. At this point, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla are in Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, this Apollos, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila, there they are, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, here's the cool thing. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. He doesn't say who it is. Church history over the years has said that it's likely Paul, but then other folks have landed in other places. Some folks have landed on Priscilla being the writer of the book, which is why she wouldn't have claimed it because it would have that's why she didn't say, hey, I wrote the book. But I'm landing on Apollos. There's a strong school of thought out there that says it's, it's Apollos, which would make absolute sense right here. Apollos is taught and tutored and mentored by Aquila and Priscilla, and then here later he's pastoring the Hebrew church in Rome and writing about the faithful that went before us. He may have been thinking about Aquila and Priscilla as he wrote those very words. The couple 
that mentored him, that would not even have been there to mentor him, except that they suffered in Rome. Faith suffers, and God does not waste it. Later on, we find in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19, at the closing little section there where Paul is closing out the letter, he mentions Aquila and Priscilla and the house church that meets in their home. These little references to Aquila and Priscilla tell us that God went on to use them in wonderful ways that he would not have used them for had they remained completely comfortable, completely stationary there in Rome. But it was through their suffering that he deployed them. One of the things I want you to think about and ask yourself as we consider that faith, faith suffers this morning is in your understanding of the gospel and your understanding of faith, do you have room for suffering? Do you have the thought that if you're suffering, you must be doing something wrong? Now, there is a very real suffering for doing stupid stuff. That's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about suffering for being faithful. Do you have room in your understanding of faith? Are you teaching that to your children? Parents, man, I'm asking myself this question. Am I equipping my children to understand that they will suffer for their faith? Could they be martyred? Possibly. Is it likely? No. Will they experience some cost to discipleship? Absolutely. The cost had nothing to do with their salvation, but the cost comes into play in responding to what Christ has done for us and the free gift of salvation. It's a guarantee. True faith suffers. And do you trust? If you have room for faith or for suffering in your understanding of faith, do you trust that God does not waste it? Do you trust that God does not waste it? One of the most common sufferings that I come in contact with in, in counseling and in pastoral ministry and in my own life is the sometimes suffering of being married well. Some of us I know in this room have to work really, 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 really hard at being married well. You've got to know that faithfulness means that you're going to continue in that. And you're going to trust that you can be faithful and suffer and God can use it to draw you and this spouse that you're suffering with closer to him. That he may put the gospel on display as you suffer together in your marriage more than should you call it quits and go try and find some easy answer. Man, faith suffers. You're going to see it all through chapter 11. The second thing we find from this passage is that faith looks ahead. Look at verse 34. We've already read verse 34, but we're going to just look primarily at the second half of it. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully, this is the key passage right here, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Faith suffers, and faith looks ahead. I found an account of what happened in Alexandria in AD 38 when those Jews were evicted from Alexandria. 
They were forced to leave their homes. Listen to this. Their enemies overran the houses, now left empty, and began to loot them, dividing up the contents like the spoils of war. Now just envision envision your cupboards. Envision your closets. Envision the things that you use every day, that you value or you wouldn't have them belonging to someone else because you've been kicked out of Alexandria. That's what happened here. It's likely very similar to what happened in Rome. But yet you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Sounds like Matthew chapter 6. It sounded familiar to me as I was looking at this and I Thought about the Matthew chapter 6 passage. Listen to this in chapter 6, verse 19 through 20. Do not lay up for, for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. That's what faith does. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It seems the disposition of the faithful, the posture of the faithful, is a posture of open-handedness with your stuff. This Hebrews preacher is reminding the Hebrews church, remember when you were open-handed with your stuff? Remember when you didn't care if people took it because you were living for what's in store? You were living for what's coming, a better possession. The word better is used frequently in the book of Hebrews. A few little snapshots that will help us understand what's going on. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16. Here's some ways this word better is used so far before we get to 1116. In chapter 6, verse 9, it's referring to better things belonging to salvation. That's what we have. We have better things belonging to salvation. Chapter 7, verse 19, we have a better hope. Chapter 9, verse 23, we have a better sacrifice. And then chapter 11, verse 16, is dealing with a little paragraph here that's talking about all these faithful folks that died looking ahead to something. They were living for a city or a country to come. Verse 16, as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You want to make sense of this better that's in store for these people, what they held fast to as they held loosely to their stuff? They're holding fast to what's in store in the better country that is a heavenly country. We know that if it abides, it can't be of this world. So we have to be speaking of something in the future. And this something, this heavenly blessing, puts in perspective the unimportance of our stuff here. Is the encouragement don't have any stuff? No. The encouragement is hold real loosely to it. Because that's what faithful folk do. Ready to liberate it at a moment's notice because we hold to something better. The city to come, the country to come. Faith looks ahead to what's in store. The next thing we find from this passage is in verse 35. Faith is bold. 
Verse 35 says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Back in chapter 3, verse 6, the Hebrews preacher encourages them, don't let go of your confidence. Hold fast to your confidence. In verse th- chapter 3, verse 6, he says, we are his house. We could say you're a Christian if indeed you hold fast your confidence and you're boasting in your hope. Boldness and confidence, those words are synonymous here. It's translated confidence. The word can also mean clearly, easily, boldness is a mark of true faith. It's not an option. It's not one of those things that might be there. It's a mark of true faith. I appreciated how one of my commentators defined this. He said, this word, this word boldness, expresses the confident attitude of the person of faith before God, we approach the throne of grace boldly, and the world. This confidence before God and the world, precisely because he enjoys free access to God through Christ's sacrificial death and heavenly intercessory ministry. He can confidently and boldly acknowledge his faith before the world. And the reason for our boldness is we're not just a bunch of chest-beaten, macho loudmouths. The confidence that we have, our boldness comes from our access that we have to the King of kings and Lord of lords, to the Creator, to the Alpha and the Omega. Man, we have access to the most powerful being that exists, period. And that puts in perspective when we're talking to a creature. It doesn't mean we're a jerk. It's not licensed to be a jerk. It's just licensed to be true and bold because we have access to that person's or that crowd's creator. Man, faith is bold. Christian boldness comes with great reward, too. It is the the title deed assuring great reward. Another passage that came to mind is in Luke chapter 6. Turn there if you would with me. I'm not going to have you turn to every passage I'm going to this morning, but a few of them I want you to see. And this is one I want you to see. Luke chapter 6. Beginning in verse 22, this is Luke's version of the Beatitudes, like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. This is Luke's version of those. They're shorter, but this last Beatitude really brings us into focus, beginning in verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, And spurn your name as evil. Now, if that's all it said, then, man, we would really, it'd be hard to sort of make sense of things. Because people can hate you or revile you for a number of reasons. I mean, you can imagine the reason somebody might dislike you. But this thing, this passage brings into focus focus for a specific reason. When you're hated, when you're excluded, when you're reviled, when you're spurned on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. I thought this boldness that's being communicated in Hebrews 
sounded familiar, and sure enough, Jesus gave the same account. Man, leap for joy because your reward is great when you face these things on account of the Son of Man and you are bold. I find that boldness, too, as I'm considering boldness, boldness is not being open and forthcoming and forthright when there's no cost. That's easy. Boldness is being open and forthright and true when there could be tremendous cost. It's when the cost is great that throne-anchored boldness is called for because that's what the faithful do. What if boldness means your job? What if boldness on account of the Son of Man means your job? Some of you can make a beeline to these realities. You work at a job right now where you know that if you share your faith, it could be perceived as proselytizing and you get canned. Let me give you some good news. God is not going to let you go hungry for that. Neither is your church. If that Esther moment arises for you, that pregnant moment where you know you have to speak the truth into that dark context or that dark moment, and somebody perceives it as proselytizing and you get canned, you're going to be okay. Not only are you going to be okay, you're going to receive great reward according to this passage. Great reward and treasure. Some of you, I bet, have been paying attention to the news this week. It actually started a couple weeks ago. It seemed like it was mid-May where the news of Miriam Yahya Ibrahim came out, this Sudanese woman. There's a picture of the couple up here. There's another picture that really makes me laugh. Now, I can say this because she's not in danger anymore. But if you want to look at the other picture, she's leaning over him, and she kind of looks like it's, like it's funny. But anyway, here's the story of this lady, this hero right here, this bold, faithful woman. She was sentenced to death in the Sudan for apostasy from the Muslim faith to Christianity. Now, her argument is, I was never a Muslim. I was raised as a Christian. Apparently, her dad was Muslim, her mom was Christian, but she said, I was raised as a Christian. But according to the government, you were once a Muslim, and now you've turned to Christianity, and you've married a Christian man. So the few of the consequences in their government, in their context, was that now you're going to be lashed a hundred times And then, if that's not enough, we're going to hang you. Now, here's the complication. She just gave birth to her second child. And they're going to let her, or they were, before the news came out yesterday, they were going to let her wean the baby for a couple of years and then go ahead and give her her lashes and then hang her for her faith. Now, something else that complicates the whole thing is that the husband would lose the children because the children would be considered illegitimate. Now, there's a lot at stake for this woman to renounce her faith. Wouldn't you agree? It'd be easy to say, okay, all right, I'm a Muslim. Leave me alone. Let me just go be happy with my Christian husband and even just be happy continuing to worship Jesus. Man, there's a lot at stake, but here's some of the things that she said. I don't have a lot of what she said, but some of the things that stood out to me. At her sentencing hearing, she said, I am a Christian and I will remain a Christian. What a hero. What a hero, knowing what's at stake. She's carrying her second child as she says that. 
knowing what's in store for her, for her husband, for her older child, and for the child she's carrying in her womb. Her husband shared that even last week they brought in sheiks and she told them, like multiple people apparently, trying to convince her. She told them, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to change my mind. (laughs) I love it. I mean, what a hero. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to change my mind. Room full of men that are trying to tell me to renounce my faith. Not going to do it as I carry my second child. The husband also shared that she's in a bad mood and she's frustrated. And I thought, okay, she's a hero and she's human. Just envision her like Paul and Peter singing hymns, you know, and just having a great time in there. But she's apparently quite human, but remained faithful. I heard yesterday that she's actually going to be set free, which is pretty cool. An answer of a lot of prayer. The world has been praying for this woman. But man, she's she's going to go free knowing that she remained true. She remained true and bold. I am a Christian and I will remain a Christian, and I'm pretty sure I'm not going to change my mind. Man. The next thing we can grab from this passage is that faith endures. Look at verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Faith suffers. Faith looks ahead, faith is bold, and faith endures. I remember when I was in Greek class in seminary, I took a number of Greek classes, and the very first Greek word I ever learned, I don't know why my Greek professor taught this word to us first, but it was the word hupomene. And I still remember it. When I, I mean, when I see it in Greek or when I hear endurance, I think hupomene because it's the first Greek word I learned. And it's a word that saturates our New Testaments. Endurance. Listen to this passage in Luke chapter 21. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, hupomene, you will gain your lives. I found other passages. The book of Revelation especially is saturated with this word, endurance. It's a word that has everything to do with what Christianity and faith is. Faithful, endure. This is the uniting mark of a true saint. This is the one ingredient, the one thing that all the faithful share is that they endure. They might have these other traits and other characteristics of their faith in varying amounts. But this is the uniting trait that every Christian, true Christian, has. Faith endures if you're a true saint. You can see other manifestations of other traits or other characteristics of your faith. You can see them in me, and I can see them in you. They're visible at times. Fruits of the Spirit are the gifts given to the church. You might see those in varying levels in you, but endurance is one thing we can't see. 
Because all we have of you right now and all you have of me right now is a snapshot and some history. It's the reason that I can't be absolutely sure that you're absolutely saved. It's the reason I can't be absolutely sure that I'm absolutely saved. That scares people to death when I say that from this pulpit. People squirm over that thought. Wait a second. If you can't be absolutely sure, then who can? Man, it's because this mark of the true saint of endurance. I've only told a couple of jokes at Crosspoint over the years, and one that I've told frequently is like they asked the old man. and said, hey, old man, lived here all your life? He says, no, not yet. It's a mindset that understands one of the key ingredients. In fact, the uniting trait of Christian faith is that we endure. I can't see the future, so I don't know if you're going to go the distance in it. So I don't want to assure you that you're absolutely saved. You have nothing to worry about. Because I might be affirming you in something when later you bail and you sit around in Greenville on Sunday mornings thinking you love Jesus, but yet you have no use for his church or his people and you're apostate bound for hell. You understand that? That's why I'm not in the business of assuring people and working out, going out of my way to tell people, you got no issues with God, man. You're good. It's all good. Because I can't see endurance. We sing it often. Lord, bind, but Lord, may your grace, Lord, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. You know what it should do in us? It should cause every single one of us to be needy and dependent on God. Man, seeing that faith endures and knowing that you haven't endured yet, you haven't breathed your last, you haven't, like Paul, as he gets to the end of his life, say, I finished the race now. You haven't gotten there yet. We ought to be a needy, dependent, humble, not presumptuous people. Man, do I love Jesus? As far as I know, am I his and he's mine? Absolutely. But Lord, bind my wandering heart to thee because faith endures. Turn to Matthew 13. I want you to see this. This is one of the passages I do want you to turn to. Matthew 13 is a chapter full of parables on the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. We had a series of sermons years ago. It was one of our earliest series from Matthew 13 on the sower, the seed, and the soils. And this is a parable that has ministered to us as a church over the years and given us perspective on a lot of things. Look at chapter 13, verse 20. This is after he shared the parable. Later on, he's explaining the point of the parable. You know that you may be familiar with the parable where the sower goes out in the field and he sows seed on the path, on the rocky soil, on the thorny soil, and then on good soil. The seed, he's not surgically placing it. He's broadcasting it, but it hits different hearts. Think of the soils at different hearts or different people in different places. Listen to this in verse 20. Of chapter 30, or excuse me, chapter 13. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately 
he falls away. That's the reason I can't assure you in all future to come, because I don't know what you're going to do when you face some tribulation or persecution on account of the word. You might bail. People do. Small group shepherds, do people bail? Deacons, elders, do people bail? If you've been in the faith any period of time, you know that this is absolutely true. This parable is helpful. I mean, you don't read it and go, oh, that makes me feel so good. Oh, I love that. You read it and go, okay, now that makes sense. They had all the signs of joy. They hear the word with joy. But then when persecution or tribulation on account of the word or account of the Lord comes out, I'm out. I'm out. Unlike Miriam, Ibrahim, yeah, okay, I'm a Muslim. <laughs> this is scary. I don't want lashes. I certainly don't want to be hung, and I want my baby back. I want my husband back. So I'm a Muslim. Man, you don't think it can happen? It happens. Let's look at the next soil. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This is yet another person that received it. From all indications, man, it looks great. Looks like this person is receiving the word like the other one. He's receiving it with joy. This one's receiving and hearing it. But then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out that word, and that one does not go the distance. That was not true faith because it didn't endure but in a snapshot, it looked pretty good. Looked great, right? They're hearing it. But it didn't endure. Maybe it started with an opportunity to work on Sunday mornings and make a bunch of bonus money. And maybe that opportunity turned into they began to neglect to meet together, as some are already in the habit of doing. And that slippery slope started with something that seemed completely innocuous. And landed in full-blown apostasy. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. The cares of the world. What, do y'all have any cares? You can think about how simple any of those things might be. The cares of the world might be that you feel like you have an athlete in your home. And this guy, you got to set free because he's going to be playing for the NBA or the, the uh, NBC. You know, all my, all my sports experience that I've got. <laughs> he's going to be playing... Baseball for the Mavericks, you know. I, I, <laughs> some people think that I say these things about sports. It's just an easy target. But the same can be true about robotics. The same can be true about insert whatever the hobby or opportunity might be. Or is there anything? Steer judging, dairy cattle judging teams. I don't know, man. <laughs> The cares of the world are always out there. Is there anything wrong with those? Absolutely not. But don't let them rob you of your endurance. Because faith endures. If it's a season, make sure it's a season. Have people hold you accountable in that. Hold me accountable that this thing, this venture I'm off on, this little season of games that we have coming up that are going to keep us away from Sundays, hold me accountable to hear the preaching of the word. Hold me accountable to meet with small groups so I don't quit the, the, the journey. Because apostasy starts with 
cares of the world. It's a big deal. <laughs> You're uptight. No, it's because I've seen a million people fall away. And it started with something seemingly innocuous. Seemingly innocent. And then before long, crickets. You call them, you email them, you see them at Walmart. I don't see them at Walmart because I don't go to Walmart. Unless I absolutely have to. Hey, what happened? Oh, man, you know, just lost interest. Faith endures. Man, faith endures. The cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches, suffering on account of the word. Though both of those soils showed real signs of life, they did not endure. Something choked them out, and then they're gone. Then they're gone. But true faith endures. The last thing I will share with you this morning of these five, five faith suffers, faith looks ahead, faith is bold, faith endures, and faith pre- preserves the soul. Faith preserves the soul. Look back at Hebrews if you've left your, your bearing there. Go back and grab Hebrews chapter 10 again. Verse 37 and 38 are so cool, and they're something that you just wouldn't get unless you're really digging in. Verse 37, 38. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Okay, I have two more passages I want you to turn to. The first one is in Isaiah chapter 26. I'm going to tell you the second one too because it's going to take you a little while to find it. Habakkuk. Turn to Habakkuk. It's a little tiny little wee book. Back in the Minor Prophets. I don't have a page number for you in your pew Bible. I do that sometimes. I just didn't think to do that until I'm standing right here and I don't have a pew Bible in front of me. Isaiah chapter 26 is the first passage I want you to look at. This little quote that he has here in Hebrews is a a combination of a couple of references, a couple of quotes. And we wouldn't know that because we're a bunch of contemporary, you know, 2014 Christians that are just reading our Bible. But they would have known that. This Jewish, Messianic Jewish church would have been familiar enough with their Old Testaments. Yes, Habakkuk. And in fact... There's some evidence that the Isaiah passage was something that they used in their liturgy each week. Isaiah 26. It's Isaiah's song. Okay? So this little phrase likely would have conjured up for them the entire chapter of Isaiah 26. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I'm going to just reference a couple things. It's a wonderful chapter. This chapter was written likely about 700 years before Christ. And listen to some of the things that are in it. Verse 3. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Man, that's a treasure. We could just hug that. Mm, I love that. Mm. But look over verse 20. This is what he's referencing with just the few words here. Let's see what those words were in Hebrews chapter 10. The few words were yet a little while. The yet a little while is not in Habakkuk. It's right here in this passage in Isaiah. Is this going to make, make completely sense to you here in a minute? I hope. 
Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you, a.k.a. hunker down. It's, we're going to greenvilleize this. Hunker down. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed. It sounds like Passover night, right? I mean, would you be, have you read about the Passover, the last plague? Man, I'd have been hunkering down by, behind a blood-slathered door with a belly full of herb-roasted lamb, mm. unleavened bread. Mm. Hide yourselves, hunker down for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. It sounds just like the Passover. Now, here's something that's cool. The Hebrews preacher references this passage apparently because there is a contingent within the Christian church that is living this way. Hunker down behind locked doors like the Passover's going on. Like the angel of death is flying over and you go outside and you're zapped. Oh. He references that passage as that's the picture of faithlessness in their context. They're in Rome. Don't do what they did in, in Isaiah 26. Now, in Isaiah 26, they're doing what God said to do, just like they said on the Passover, too. You better stay behind blood slathered doors because it's about to get nasty. But that's not the message for Rome. That's not the message for the early church. It's not the message for this church. If you think your job as a Christian in Greenville is to sit hunkered down behind blood slathered doors and let the fury pass by, you're in the wrong age. <laughs> it's the wrong time. That's not what's going on right here. That's faithlessness in this time. That's what he calls later on in this quote, in this reference, shrinking back. And he says the result of shrinking back is destruction, ironically. Let's look at the Habakkuk passage. Hopefully you found it by now. It's a wee little book, great book, written about 100 years after Isaiah. This would have been in the 600s or so B.C. The context is Babylon is bearing down on Judah, and Habakkuk is crying out to God for help. This little book, Habakkuk, is sort of like a prophet version of Job, where the Habakkuk is going back and forth with God. It's not full of sermons for God's people. It's Habakkuk going back and forth about God. God, where is your vindication? You're about to crush us with Babylon. What in the world are you up to? He's crying out to God for help. He's wondering when vindication would come. And listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Now, here's if there's one kind of tricky place in the sermon this morning, this is it. And the reason it's tricky is because we don't use the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. But the Hebrews preacher does. <laughs> that's where it's complicated because we don't use it, but the Hebrews preacher does. And that's why if you read the Hebrews preacher's quote, it doesn't read the same way as it does here in our versions. Listen to verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. Actually, I'm going to start above that. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets... So he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It, watch this, it hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. 
It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, here's the thing I'm sad about. I'm sad that I've never studied this passage. Yet apparently Paul did. Apparently the early church did. Apparently the entire Protestant movement sits on the righteous will live by faith. And here I am having been a pastor for 11 years, sitting here in Greenville, Texas in 2014, and I've never grabbed the context here in Habakkuk that Paul grabbed when he quoted it in Romans and Galatians. The righteous shall live by faith. Now, just confession has nothing to do with the sermon. But maybe it's conviction for you that you're going to pay attention in these next couple minutes. Okay? Because it's, it, it's an awesome, awesome passage. Now, here's the Septuagint version. This is what the Hebrews preacher was reading. Maybe it was Apollos, whatever. That, they used the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. For the vision is yet for a time, and it shall shoot forth at the end, and not in vain. Though he should tarry, wait for him. That's the first difference. It says it in this translation that we have in our Bibles right here. The Septuagint says he. The Septuagint is messianic. It's talking about hang in there, be faithful, wait, because he's coming. Listen to how it continues to read. Though he should tarry, wait for him. For he will surely come and will not tarry. If he should draw back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But the just shall live by my faith. It's a very different reading. And it has some different meaning. And we can trust and know that since the Hebrews preacher is writing inspired by the Holy Spirit, we can trust that it's true as well. You don't have to go, okay, well, is this right or wrong? They're both right. They're both true. But here's the emphasis for the Hebrews preacher. Why is he going and grabbing this passage in Habakkuk? He's grabbing it because the point he's making is that we are to live lives not according to what we see, what Habakkuk is seeing unfold in front of him, but by what he knows to be true. The righteous shall live by faith, what we don't see. Now, Paul uses that reference, the righteous shall live by faith, as how we come into life by faith. The Hebrews preacher is using it in a different way. How the living are characterized. Faithfulness. Faith. Very different, but both true. Now, here's the point that he's making in this passage. I'm going to read another passage from Habakkuk. This is going to bring it into focus. Chapter 3, verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Though my eyes tell me all, from all indications that God has bailed on me, 
If you lived in Rome in the time that the Hebrews letter was written, you might feel that way. Apparently they did. If you're really honest with yourself in 2014, there are probably times where you feel that way. Maybe God has bailed on me. Maybe the fig tree hasn't blossomed. There's no fruit on the vine. The field yields no food. Yet I will live by faith and rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Here's the whole point of Habakkuk. Here's the whole point of this reference. When everything around you is turned upside down, God's true people will hang on and go the distance and wait for Christ's return. That's the point. God's true people will hang on, not hunker down behind locked doors, but being salty, bright, and aromatic in a difficult place, in difficult times, and this kind of faith preserves the soul. All right? <laughs> now, I really worked hard at having some good images this morning. I like to do images every now and again because they kind of help you connect to a thought because you can kind of remember an image. But I could not come up with an image for preserving the soul. I spent 30 minutes. I'm like, I'm wasting my time. So I said, all right, Christy, help me with this. So we picked out this silly one that has, it has even a little bonnet on it. You can't, it's hard to make out, but these preserves have a little bonnet on it. It's silly, but you'll remember it. Faith preserves the soul. Faith suffers. Faith looks ahead. Faith is bold. Faith endures. And faith preserves the soul. We're embarking on a journey this summer to consider the faith of the heroes. It's going to be a cool journey. The thing that I'm excited about it is Brad and Scott and I are all going to be preaching from the same book at the same time. It's never happened in 11 years of ministry here. On different Sundays, we're going to be hitting some of these heroes of the faith and looking through the lens of not only what the Hebrews preacher says about them, but through the narratives. They're not just for little wee kids. <laughs> They're for grown-ups. We'll know who to imitate. We'll know who to model after as they were faithful in hard places and as, they, as their souls were preserved in the end. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for our supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I hope in some way that some of you have been sort of um, stirred this morning to want to be faithful heroes, to want to be faithful and true to what we're called to. You know, if you're landed on, oh, I guess I have to quit all sports, so you misunderstood everything I said this morning. Don't land there. But if you're landing in a place where I want to be, I want, I, I want to be faithful. I want to be what he calls the Hebrews church to. I don't want the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches to uh, choke out my faith. I don't want persecution on account of the word, which according to our Bibles, we will face at some point if you're faithful to crush my faith. If you have some of those thoughts this morning, I want to encourage you with the realization that true and rich and heroic faith 
starts with small, seemingly unimportant things. My mom sent me a speech this week. She's, always, she's not always. Occasionally she sends me something that she finds interesting. It was a commencement speech by an admiral. I don't know if he's one of the highest ranking admirals. I think in spec ops or special ops he is. He's the highest ranking SEAL, from what I understand, in the Navy. He was sharing this commencement speech at UT Austin, and he had these series of things that he learned from BUDGE training, which is the initial training for SEALs. And I appreciated his first one. I appreciated all of them. They were well, well done, well communicated. But here's his first one. Every morning in basic SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they would inspect was your bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. That's Navy talk for bed. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened seals. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. <laughs> it will give you a small sense of pride. And it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. By the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things matter in life. If you can't do the little things right, you will never do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made that you made, and a made bed gives you the encouragement that tomorrow will hopefully be better. And here's what he summarizes this statement. If you want to change the world, start by making your bed. <laughs> Isn't that greatness? I love it, though, in the faith direction. In a faith direction, our bed making is the simple stuff like gathering corporately. Come on, is it really that important? Like gathering corporately every chance you get. Like taking the supper every chance you get. It's our made bed. It's something we connect to that's an accomplished work. Here's the difference, though. We're enjoying what he accomplished, and we do it every chance we can. Let's look at our passage today, and hopefully this will come into focus, how important it is. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat because you're eating it as a divided people. Keep that in mind. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? 
Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. One of the cool things about the supper weekly, the small things, the making your bed, is that we have to keep short accounts with each other. You shouldn't be taking the supper from week to week. If you're crossways with your wife, if you're crossways with your buddy, if you're crossways with that other mom that didn't invite you to something, don't take the supper. Reconcile it. And then race to it together the next week. Sit beside each other. Moan together as you swallow it. Isn't that good? Mm, Couldn't wait for that this week. I missed it last week. Because we wouldn't have been taking the Lord's Supper together last week because we were divided. See the little simple stuff like that? Do you realize what division can do to you and what it can do to your faith, to your worship, to your walk? And when a husband's divided with his wife and not living with her in an understanding way and not reconciled with her, his prayers are hindered. It has tremendous impact on you and your faith. So what a beautiful thing, this little bed-making thing. It might seem like, oh, whatever, just making my bed. This simple thing gives us a short account with each other if we're doing the work between Sundays to reconcile with each other if we've hurt each other. Let's keep reading. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now listen to this passage. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, put, just put your, your family name in there. As often as... Whoever, Clint just got up, so he comes to mind, the Stevens. As often as the Stevens or the McGraws eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Does that seem like a small thing to you? As often as we take and eat and drink together, we proclaim to each other the Lord's death until he comes back. We remind each other, don't bail. He had an awesome work that's completed and finished, and now he sits on the high throne of heaven next to the Father, interceding relentlessly for you. Don't quit. Keep going. We get to do that every week in the meal. It's not a small thing at all. Let's continue. Whoever, whoever therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This thing that can seem so small and seem so insignificant as a made bed... This weekly thing that we do together forces us, if we're faithful, to keep short accounts with each other. It forces us to frequently examine each other or examine ourselves, as this passage says. Is there, am I harboring some unconfessed sin? Am I an idolater? Am I a heart idolater right now? And I need to confess that to my God before I take this supper? 
You see how something that seems so insignificant and so small can be so important that what we're doing when we take the supper each week as we are keeping short accounts with each other, we are examining the body and we are proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. Man, if we want to conquer the world with heroic faith, let's start with the simple things. Like taking the supper rightly. Like taking it if you're physically able to get here. <laughs> Racing to it. I need it. I need it. Do you? Let me pray and we'll pass out our elements. God, I look forward to this summer. I look forward to considering the lives of frail and feeble people who, like Miriam in jail, is frustrated and discouraged maybe. And in a bad mood. (laughs) Lord, I'm thankful that she also is saying that she is Christian and will remain Christian. And that she's not going to change her mind. God, I pray that we would have that kind of faith. God, I confess it's not something we can muster. For even this kind of faith comes from you. But God, I pray that we will have this kind of faith so that we will be a salty, a truly salty, bright, aromatic, out from behind closed doors people in our context. God, I pray that we would be a people that hold loosely to our stuff, that hold loosely to our jobs, that even hold loosely to our friends and our even our family relationships because of what's at stake. Lord, I pray that nothing's off limits when it comes to faith with you and faith in you. God, I pray that you would work this kind of faithfulness in us this summer as we enjoy the heroes together. And God, as we take together this simple thing that we do each week, I pray that we would see how important it is, what it represents, what it means the weekly work of keeping a short account that goes with it, the weekly proclamation of Christ crucified and risen and seated and reigning and ruling and his imminent return. God, the weekly opportunity to examine ourselves, to see if we're heart idolaters in some way. God, I pray that this would be a faithful meal. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's distribute the elements.